Welcome to the Red Clear Politics Takeaway for Friday, October 6th. I'm Andrew Walworth. The speakership of the U.S. House of Representatives is now vacant. As Kevin McCarthy lost a ballot this week to remove him from the office, with all House Democrats and eight of his fellow Republicans voting against him. McCarthy says he won't run again, and next week, Republican members will try to elect his successor and to see if anyone can unite the fractured GOP House into a ruling majority. President Trump spent much of the week in a New York City courtroom where he both sat in on his $250 million civil fraud trial and, during the breaks, railed against the New York Attorney General, the judge overseeing the case, and even the judge's staff, earning the former president a gag order for his efforts. And speaking of trying to shut people up, Democrats apparently want to stop the group called No Labels from running an independent presidential candidate in 2024, saying that to do so would hurt President Biden's chances for re-election. But polls show that a majority of Americans don't like either party's current frontrunner, and the opportunity to join the race as a third choice is proving tempting to the likes of Cornell West, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., and if No Labels succeeds, maybe a few others. Joining me to talk about all this and what has been a wild week in Washington are Real Clear Politics co-founder and president Tom Bevan, Washington Bureau Chief Carl Cannon, and Josh Krashauer, senior political correspondent at Axios. So, Tom, um, not a great week for now former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. He said, bring it on, and Matt Gates and seven others did so with the help of the entire Democratic caucus. So what happened, and more importantly, what happens next? Well, what happened was that the Faustian deal that McCarthy made to become Speaker, allowing this motion to vacate, it only takes one member to, to file the motion to vacate, you know, was always out there hanging over his head. In some ways, I'm surprised he lasted as long as he did. <laughs> I thought for a while he was doing a pretty good job of keeping the caucus together. They got some stuff done. It was, you know, it looked like it was, I wouldn't say a match made in heaven, but I mean, you know, they were getting along and it all blew up. One version of the story is it blew up because, right, Kevin McCarthy ended up uh, having to deal with Democrats to to keep the government open because this sort of rogue caucus uh, of conservative Republicans uh, vetoed, you know, his effort to pass something with, you know, spending cuts and, and whatnot. So he had no choice. Um, he felt he had no choice. Another version of the story is, listen, this was Matt Gates's revenge story. It was always going to happen. It depends on who you believe and who you talk to. I think it's probably, it certainly seemed the case that it was personal to Matt Gates in a lot of ways and, and in certain uh, instances. But at the end of the day, I mean, this was a feature, not a bug in terms of the way that Republicans decided to elect their speaker. And what's going to be interesting is, you know, Jim Jordan has already said he's running. Steve Scalise is running. He said, I'll, I'll keep it this way. Other folks, moderates are saying, listen, you got to change this. This is ridiculous. We've got to go back to, you can't just have one person or, you know, go back to an older set of rules that, that would make it much, much more difficult to, to file a motion to vacate. So we'll see whether that happens or not. Um, if it doesn't happen, then, you know, it took, I don't know, 200 and something years for this to be, this is the first time it's ever happened. And it might be very much like impeachment where it starts happening on a pretty regular, frequent basis. And and a lot of people would say that's bad for the country. I talked to someone today and said, you know, the shocking thing is that it's never happened before. Think of all the speakers we had, all the awful speakers that we've had. And this is the first time this has happened. You know, maybe it's, maybe it's a good thing. Maybe it should happen more. So <laughs> we'll see. That's, yeah, that's, that's one way of looking at it. 
a sunny, sunny That's right, lemonade. <laughs> Joshua, what do you make of it? And also, um, you know, Steve Scalise is sort of the front runner right now, but he's got cancer. He's uh, he's not a healthy man. He's uh, was injured in 2017. A lot of people are worried about his ability to uh, carry out the office. That seems to be a theme on Capitol Hill these days with uh, all our aging and sick uh, lawmakers. Well, it's not going to be easy for any successor to take over this very fractious caucus where you know only five Republicans can cause chaos and uh, have a repeat of what we saw in January where it took 15 uh, rounds to, to actually elect McCarthy. And it was a very embarrassing process for the Republican Party. And those divisions haven't changed one iota. If anything, they've gotten uh, worse. And look, Jim Jordan, who is a serious contender, is going to have problems getting those moderates or especially those folks who want to win re-election in tough districts. Uh, Jim Jordan was uh, Matt Gaetz not that long ago as the the founder of the Freedom Caucus that was making uh, John Boehner's life miserable. And now I think it says a lot about where the Republican Party has evolved to in that he is now a leading candidate to become the the next speaker, align himself with Kevin McCarthy over the last uh, couple of years. Scalise is also, um, even though he worked as McCarthy's uh, majority leader, is uh, a notch to the right, I think, uh, ideologically, of, of where McCarthy is. And look, McCarthy is, uh, you know, boy, as someone who's covered him throughout his time in Washington, he's a real a tragic figure in that he always wanted to be speaker. He was uh, in the, on that famous uh, cover of the 2010 book of Young Guns, right? Paul Ryan, Eric Cantor, Kevin McCarthy. Yeah, where where are they now? <laughs> where are they now? Right, Cantor is a lobbyist, and Paul Ryan is, is out of politics, and Kevin McCarthy was sort of by really uh, kind of not having really any core principles and being able to kind of you know find some middle ground with a Republican Party in the House, a caucus in the House that had been going pretty pretty far to the right. He was able to hold on as long as he did. He he lost his first effort at speaker uh, back in 2015 when he made a big flub talking about uh, Hillary Clinton and Benghazi and and then that allowed Paul Ryan to become speaker back then and then he finally gets to the promised land and it takes 15 rounds and and a national embarrassment where where he couldn't get even some some uh, you know normal allies to join his side until it was becoming a, a joke, and now he lasts uh, nine months and is the only uh, I believe the only House Speaker in American history to be uh, ousted by his or be defenestrated in the way he was by his own party. Look, McCar- I, I don't think the problem was mainly with McCarthy. I think McCarthy actually had a lot of the political aptitude to, frankly, last as long as he did to make he he got a, a debt ceiling vote. Um, that actually was able to unite the, the the hard right and the more more pragmatic elements of his conference, but I, I don't think anyone can can manage this this Republican caucus. It'll be an interesting test to see who emerges. I also think that we may see a third candidate. Scalise and Jordan each have a really, I think they have very tough challenges to get to two hundred eighteen votes, and I think we'll see a lot of surprises to come. Okay, well, name names then, Josh. Who's it going to be? Elise Stefanik. Well. Uh, <laughs> McHenry, who's you know serving in the role on an interim basis, a loyalist of McCarthy. The question is, who wants the job, right? I, I could, I can. Stefan. I mean, they're, they're names. The people, at least Stefanik has been mentioned in leadership. She certainly is someone who's moderate, a little more moderate ideologically, but very sort of pro-Trump in, in her own way. There, there are a lot of possible candidates. My, my big question is, are we going to have a repeat of January? I, I think there's a good likelihood that we're going to have an inability for any of these uh, Republicans to get the 218 votes because moderates may not jump on the the Jordan bandwagon and and Scalise may have his own challenges for the reasons that Tom laid out. 
So, Carl, what does this mean sort of short-term in terms of the government shutdown, but also for the 24 election? Because a lot of people are saying this is showing that the Republicans are a mess, they can't rule, and it's going to hurt them in the in, in House and Senate races going forward, where they've got this slim majority that they're trying to maintain. You don't know what voters, how closely voters pay attention to the machinations in Washington You know, in an off year. There's not even a midterm this year. So the storyline that the most of the media has portrayed that, that Josh and Tom have said, that the Republicans can't govern. From where I sit, that's not what happened. Um, what happened was eight Republicans out of 218, eight. That's, that's uh, I, you know, I, I'll do the math real quick. Right in my head, I used to be good at math. That's 94, 93.8%, 90, something like that. Uh, not, no, it's more than that. It's 95 something percent. So, you know, Fewer than 4%, 3.8%. I'm just doing the math. I'm sorry. Um, of Republicans you know, didn't support their own speaker. All of the Democrats voted for chaos. This Matt Gates and these seven Republicans, all of whom gave incoherent responses for why they did what they did, voted with the Democrats. That was the alliance. The Democrats wanted chaos, and Matt Gates wanted chaos, and the seven people, they got it. I don't, I, that doesn't look to me like a party that can't govern. I don't think that's a fair way to think about it or talk about it. They had this weird talking point. It's not our, it's not our job to help the Republicans sort out their mess. Uh, Hakeem Jeffries, and this was repeated by others. Oh, they having a civil war. Well, 210 to 18 doesn't seem like a civil war. So it's pretty one-sided. What those guys, with the Democratic talking point, you want to translate it? Here's a translator. Yeah, of course I voted party over country. Yes, of course, I don't care about the runnings of the House of Representatives. I don't really care about the budget. What I care about is winning the next election. So you tell, you ask me, will this help Democrats uh, win the next election? Well, Democrats are counting on it. That's why they did it. That's why they voted for chaos. The question, I guess, is will the, will the voters see through that? I guess a lot depends upon what happens next week, right, Josh? Well, wait, one, one, one other thing about Scalia. You guys mentioned him. Scalise. Excuse me, Steve Scalise. He um, Scalise <laughs> yes, is another he is. guy altogether. <laughs> Maybe Scalia will be Speaker of the House. <laughs> Look, Steve Scalise. Steve Scalise was going through you know chemotherapy as this was unfolding. But here's a guy who literally has the battle scars. He is shot, nearly killed by a woke nut job Democrat who wants to kill Republicans. He's got the Purple Heart. It, it, they're going to have trouble. Any of these people, even even Matt Gates, whose shamelessness is kind of almost you can admire it. It's so extreme. They're going to have trouble saying Scalise is anything but, you know, what he what he says he is. is a conservative guy who wants to, you know, enact conservative principles. But Steve Scalise is also not an idiot, as some of these other people are. You know, the Democrats are always going around saying the Republicans are anti-democratic. Okay, well, here's the evidence for it. The Democrats have the White House and the Senate. They have the House narrowly, by we know now, working in a working majority of seven or eight votes. And yet those seven or eight people think that they should control the federal budget. That's pretty undemocratic. That's not how it works. Scalise is a guy who knows how it works and can do the math. And I think can explain to them, I, I'm not talking about what Matt Gates. Matt Gates doesn't seem to really care about these issues. But he could explain to these people, Nancy Mace and these other people, look, here's a, we got a tiny mi- minority. We got a tiny majority in the House. We don't run the government. We got it. We we do have to compromise with these people. 
you don't think that's what McCarthy said to them over and over and over again for the entire yeah. two weeks leading up to? I know it is, Tom. But what I'm saying is that I, I just think they'd have trouble telling Steve Calise that, you know, you're not the genuine article. This guy walks with a limp. He, he, he literally, the, the woke Democrats tried to kill him. That My point is that I wouldn't underestimate that as a factor. Uh, I think they also like him a little more than they like McCarthy. I think they think he's a little more of a straight shooter. I, I don't know what Jim Jordan's doing, but I think if Scalise really asserts his, himself, he, he has the job. The question I have is why you why you would want it. So I agree with Carl that what I call the nihilist caucus of eight, the the Matt Gates caucus, is, is a fringe of the Republican Party. We we've seen sort of this play itself out in in Republican politics, House Republican politics over the last decade, where you have you know Jordan used to play that role. I mean, he was. You know, the, the Mark Meadow, you know, very, very familiar and nationally known faces were uh, the Matt Gates, even though I think Gates ha- is, is in a category of, of his own for other reasons. But I do think the divisions are a little deep, more deeper than, than, than Carl outlined, just because, you know, the, the reason Gates voted to, to vacate the speakership was largely because McCarthy didn't have the backing of almost half his caucus when he decided to go ahead with this continuing resolution to fund the government for 45 days. And that was uh, what would normally be good governance or just, you know, keep, keep the government open as sort of a basic fundamental thing you would think any, any, any legislature would do. And that was dividing the caucus pretty, pretty evenly. And it wasn't just eight Republicans. It, w- it was a sizable share of the House Republican caucus that ultimately rebelled on, over that issue. And the issue of Ukraine funding is also a big hot potato that um, McCarthy was having trouble Handling within the caucus, the Senate Republicans are very, very supportive, by and large, of funding uh, Ukraine's uh, defense against Russian aggression. But an increasing number of House Republicans and over half in the most recent House vote were actually against uh, that position. And there's a divide, pretty much a 50-50 divide in that House Republican caucus that really divides the party over, over on significant ideological grounds. Well, Josh, let me break in there real quick. These Some of these Republicans just are... You know, they are all over the map. The the that the fifty percent you're talking about, the anti-Ukraine funding. Some of them are just you know pro-Russia, you know, crazy people. Other are fiscal conservatives who just think that you know every, as Tom pointed out um, on our podcast a, a month or two ago, you know every dollar you send to Ukraine is borrowed. I mean, because we're running deficit spending. But others have an idea that the American people aren't swallowing it because the Biden administration, the Democrats won't spend any money at the border. And I heard during this McCarthy thing, several of these people say, well, what they want for Ukraine funding is a promise to spend an equal amount or more on the border. In other words, there's an obvious compromise there if it gets to that. Okay, you want Ukraine, we want border security. Those are majority positions with the American people. So it seems to me you'd need you need somebody savvy enough to make that deal, to sell it to the Democrats and to sell it to the conference. But that's where the American people are. It, it shouldn't be an impossible sell. It shouldn't be, though. We've seen all too often when there have been deals to be had, like DACA for borders. I mean, it never happens because Congress has been so broken. It, it's obvious to, I think, many, many people that there is a deal that and, and compromises that can be can be made. I also wanted to address Carl's. Well, I agree with Carl about the Democrats. The Democrats haven't gotten quite as much attention and how they handled this. Um, I think there are two kind of important points that may have gone a little bit overlooked. Number one, like Hakeem Jeffries has had a pretty good relationship with McCarthy. And I think McCarthy was re- almost relying on that personal relationship to almost bail him out in, in the process. And, you know, I've heard that this was 
a Pelosi just like Pelosi really put her fingerprints on uh, not having any Democrats uh, even vote present to to bail uh, Kevin McCarthy out. Now, look, partisan politics is partisan politics. I don't think the Democrats the burden was on them to to get get McCarthy out of this mess. But surely someone in the problem solvers caucus, surely one of the moderate House Democrats, all they would have had, all, all you would need is two or three of them to vote present or not even vote at all. Um, you know, and, and you would have the lack of chaos and you would have the care of the institution that that Democrats and Pelosi herself speak so fondly of. But that was not an institutionalist move. Another norm busted. I, I think McCarthy and, and, uh, you know, the North Carolina Republican Patrick McHenry and ousting Pelosi and Steny Hoyer from their hideaways. I think they that was a reflection of who McCarthy blamed for uh, not not, uh, you know, putting that institution first. Tom, do you blame the Democrats? I think Josh is right. And Carl, too. I mean, yes, they 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 had an opportunity for, again, all it would have taken was a few of the moderates to vote present or not even show up. You know, this whole thing could have been avoided, right? He just, McCarthy stuck his neck out by keeping the government open and angering members of his caucus. And and to Josh's point, I mean, Democrats over there talking about, oh, you know, how much they value democracy and all and blah, 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 blah. When, when it comes to brass tacks, we are pulling fire alarms and we're, you know, voting to out. I mean, it's like, it's a pure power play and that's, that's fine, but let's at least be honest about it. And like, I don't want to hear any more from, you know, any of these, any of these folks about, you know, how important the institution is and bipartisanship. we got to work together. It's like, well, you had your chance and, and when it was right in front of you, you couldn't even muster a couple of present votes uh, to save a guy who was, who was trying to, you know, govern and run the government. And as a result of that, they're not going to get anyone who's going to be more amenable to doing deals than McCarthy. I mean, for sure. Now, maybe that's, again, maybe that's what they wanted. And so they get someone who's a little more far right, and therefore they can demonize that person in the upcoming election. But certainly it it was a cynical, cynical maneuver. So they can get off the high horse. Well, let's talk about uh, someone else's for a minute. Let's talk about Donald Trump, uh, Josh. He was in court this week. Some were surprised that he chose this as the case where he sort of uh, became so vocal about it. So what are the politics of this? And how do you think he's doing in court? And probably more important, how is he doing in the court of public opinion? Well, to the to the latter point, any anytime Trump is able to make the case that the the deep state that Letitia James, that an over aggressive uh, judge is out to get him. Um, I, you know, I think it plays well with the base. And I think this is, you look at all the, you know, the, the chorus of indictments and it's easy for at least the partisans on the Republican side to kind of just look at this as a witch hunt, even though there's uh, some of the cases, I don't know. I'm, you know, this is, this is, this is much more about Trump's like financial self image and, and his ability to market himself as like a successful uh, entrepreneur. And that brand is something Trump cares about regardless of the political stakes. I think that that is a, a major part of the myth making and the fact that you had, I think that's why he went to New York and tried to personally rebut what was learned and gone over in trial. The, the only thing I think that could have an impact politically is if he is, you know, found liable and, and, and has, you know, you get the headline that he is guilty of these financial uh, overstatements. We, we see in some polls that any conviction of, if, if a jury, if, if the, the, through the legal process that he's convicted, 
that could affect uh, whether Republicans support him as much as they have to this point. And so maybe, maybe that does have a small, small impact on his uh, very, very strong support. But look, I think a lot of this is just noise to, um, to the Republicans and to his supporters. They, they just see this as another example in their minds of Democrats kind of relying on the courts instead of politics to defeat him. It did seem to me, Carl, that of the cases against him, this would have been the case if I were advising him to say, yeah, you can make a big deal out of this because I think people can understand it. There's no jury of his peers. He's being tried by this single judge. It does seem like uh, it sort of is more a case of persecution than maybe some of the others. What do you make of it? Well, yeah, he's being charged. He's being tried by a judge who can't stand him uh, and the feelings mutual, uh, you know, a Democrat who who said things intemperately about Trump from the bench, who mugs for the cameras, who wants to, you know, gag orders on Trump because Trump tweeted a picture of his clerk mugging the camera with, with, uh, or yeah, posing for a picture with Charles, with Chuck Schumer. It just seems like a partisan thing and, and a victimless crime. What Trump is accused of doing is inflating his own wealth. We know he does that. I mean, <laughs> let's just stipulate to that. This is sort of the whole Trump years in a microcosm. Trump does something sketchy and marginally ethical, and the Democrats double down and do something sketchy and marginally eth- ethical. You know, the, Trump says Mar-a-Lago is worth I don't know, you know, billions of dollars. The the judge cites some assessment from the county says no, it's worth eighteen million. Well, there's properties one tenth the size of Mar-a-Lago who sold for one hundred fifty million. So we that's. As much as Trump's exaggerated his wealth, the Democrats have gone even further in diminishing his wealth. But to your point, this is actually something he cares about. Trump, this there there was a roast of Trump many years ago before he was in public life to raise money for charity. And Trump agreed to be roasted and be insulted for two hours. There's a small clip of it on YouTube you can find, and it's a little off color, so I won't go into it. But before the roast, they asked Trump, you know, can we joke, can we kid you about your sex life? Yeah, sure. That's fine. How about your hair? Yeah, that's fair game. Your daughter? Yeah, yeah. Whatever you want to say. Uh, your net worth? No, don't go there. It's the one thing he refused to be teased about. He's it's his his whole persona is wrapped up on it. So this must be hard for him. And I think the Democrats know that. And they're really trying to hit him where it's where it hurts. But it's lawfare. It's not law. And that's the problem with it. It is it's bad government. It's a bad precedent. The Democrats are doing it all over the country. And what makes what makes anybody think they'll only do it to Trump or that they've only done it to Trump? Do you remember this guy, Michael Pack, who was appointed to head the what, what Josh, what's that thing? It's Voice, it's of, America. Voice of America, but yeah. it's the it's the whole thing over Voice of America. Broadcasting Board of Governors. Yeah. And for and they held up his nomination for two years. I mean, till till Trump was almost leaving office. And they started an investigation in DC, got some Democrat to investigate that his that his charity hadn't been run properly. It was apparently all nonsense and it went away. Uh, the guy, by the way, the senator who did that, who started that investigation, was Bob Menendez. You can't make this stuff up. And 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 that's the real problem with it. Yeah, it's funny needling Trump about his his net worth. I, I'm enjoying that myself. But the Democrats shouldn't be encouraged with using the courts in this way. We shouldn't think that this is okay because, as Tom said, you know, it's it's violating the norms again. You know, Tom, my old friend Robert Reich uh, wrote. The same article, which I think he's written about 20 times now. Um, I love Bob, but... Um, Trump is bad. Tr- well, no, Trump is bad, but this is like the corners being oh, turned. Walls are closing in. This is the one. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. This is the time. 
Uh, any truth in that, you think? When you look at the polls, what do you see? For the reasons that Carl mentioned, and add to it Letitia James, okay, who ran explicitly, and there was a video you know, circulating around a, a mashup of her all the time. She said during her campaign, Trump's a legitimate. You elect me. I'm going after him. I'm going to you know, kick his ass. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to take him down. And so she brings this case, and then she stands there the other day and says, I'm not going to be bullied by this guy. And, you know, this is not a partisan case. This is a, you know, pattern of fraud. I mean, it's just like the Democrats, first of all, they have no idea. I think they have no idea how badly they're damaging the institutions that they are representing via this. And Carl mentioned the the judge, the his behavior uh, has been, in my opinion, so unprofessional the way he's managed this thing. I mean, you would think if you were a judge sitting or presiding over this case, you would want to be beyond even the, the slightest hint of reproach of partisanship or bias. And there he is, you know, mugging for the cameras. And I mean, it's just, it's, it's horrendous. And so not only are they damaging the institutions of which they are a part, they are, they're helping Trump. I mean, they're making his case. This is clearly a partisan exercise. And and they're making that more clear by the day. And for that reason, I think Republican voters already think that, okay, that's clear. Wall Street Journal poll a couple weeks ago had every successive indictment was seen as more political and, and with less merit than the one before it. And I think this is only going to make that feeling greater among Republicans, but I think also among independents. It's going to make him stronger. I mean, it's just, there's no question about it. It's going to confirm, it confirms the priors of all Republicans. This is just a, an absolute sham. But I think even independents are going to look at this and say, this is not a, a legitimate case. They're, they're after this guy. And that makes him more sympathetic and it's going to make him stronger. Let me make one caveat to that. I don't know that it's going to make him stronger. I'm not sure I agree with that. I, I think at some point, voters just get sick of it. It, it, may, it may weaken Trump. But I, I would, but to your earlier point about harming the institutions, that to me is the real point. Even if the, it succeeds in the short term from the Democrats, even if it does weaken Trump and doesn't strengthen him, you, what you've done is you've created contempt for the criminal justice system. And that is something that has long term harm to the country. It's what happened during prohibition. You immediately made criminals out of half the country. And I just think, and, and it took a long time. You know, organized crime took root. People started rooting for criminals and outlaws. I, I just think th- that even if it's effective, the Democrats shouldn't be doing it because because of, of the ramifications to how people feel about the court system. Well, I want to talk about no labels for a second here, which is this Washington-based group. They call themselves a national movement of common sense Americans pushing our leaders together to solve our country's biggest problems. They've talked about running a centrist for president, names like uh, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, former governor of Maryland, Larry Hogan. And they've accused the Democratic National Committee now, Carl, of waging war against uh, no labels. For, first of all, are they out to get no labels? Uh, and if so, why? Well, they are waging war against no labels. That's hardly a, a you know an exaggeration. And they've sent out these memos of unearth from state party chairman in Maine and Utah, who've described them as the enemy and, you know, just smeared them and slandered them. It's, it's really a right wing thing. They're getting money. We know who their donors are and it's, it's all nonsense, but, but they're the Democrats, Democrats I like and respect. Uh, they've done the polling. 
Greg Schneider, who's a really good pollster and a friend of mine who's done polling for the party, they are convinced and they say that they, data shows it, that a third party, no labels, hurts, will hurt Biden, helps Trump, hurts them. Maybe if it's wildly successful, throws it into the House, uh, that advantages the Republicans. So when the when the Democratic National Park Committee says that no labels is anti-democratic and then does all this anti-democratic stuff to keep them off the ballot, I mean, what is more anti-democratic than fighting people from getting on a ballot? It's Orwellian. What they mean, I'll translate it. What they mean is it will help Trump and Trump's anti-democratic. So I... I'm very sympathetic to no labels and I, 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 more people on the ballot, the better for me. And I think democracy needs a breath of fresh air, a third party, independent parties, all of that. I think you break up the duopoly. You do, you do good for the country. You give more choices. Having said that, what the Democrats are doing is not illogical, Andy. They are convinced that, that it would help Trump beat Biden and they don't want that to happen. Josh, what do you think? Well, if there was any election in which voters say, that they want a third choice, a fourth choice, maybe it is a 2024 likely rematch between uh 82 year old Joe Biden and a potentially uh, convicted Donald Trump by the time of the, the, I mean, this is, this is the moment I think we need to think big picture. And I feel like no labels is frankly being unfairly maligned in some ways because they're responding to the interests of voters. It's one thing if you're, you know, forcing a candidate, uh, to an electorate that is satisfied with their choices. This is uh, a moment where people are screaming for competent uh, leadership and are very, very dissatisfied with the the, the candidates that are being put before them. Uh, you know, 70% of Democrats in poll after poll are worried about Biden's age. Uh, Trump is, uh, for a, a former president, obviously inspires a lot of ba- support with the the party, but there is a, a notable faction of anti-Trump Republicans that um, were looking for another option and can't line up with the Democrats. So the, the problem with the labels, though, is that, um, first of all, we're very partisan. So even though we we hate the other side, we, we may not like the candidates before us, but boy, like Carl said, Democrats will vote for Biden if they don't stop Trump. Uh, and it's a threat to democracy. Trump is a threat to democracy. That, 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 is, that is the higher calling. And Republicans say the same about biden um so we're kind of in this negative this moment of negative polarization where you know there is an opportunity for a third party candidate to emerge but it's still it, that candidacy is going to be framed as someone as as we've already seen from dick Gebhardt and a lot of a lot of uh, no lab, anti no labels groups that they, they would cost the election to trump uh, the other challenge i think for no labels is that the leading candidates that have been mentioned like a joe manchin john huntsman uh larry hogan those are all politicians. And if there's anything that's clear from voters who are independent and disillusioned with the state of democracy and the state of politics, they don't want someone in politics. They don't want someone who's spouting the talking points. Uh, they want someone totally out. That's why Don- Donald Trump is really the, our first uh, third party candidate to win the presidency. He's, he's essentially, you know, an independent himself and he was an outsider and he was a celebrity and that that's what it able enabled him to conquer the Republican Party's primary. But, uh, you know, I think if, if a, a no-labels candidate is going to succeed, it's going to be someone like a Mark Cuban or someone who is moderate in temperament uh, but is outside the world of government and politics because I think there's an inherent... That, that, that's why Robert F. Kennedy Jr., for all of his conspiracy theories, is, is polling fairly well because he's tapping into a lot of the disillusionment and distrust out there 
with with the broader American public. And he uh, he is uh, considering a third party run himself at this point, right? And he was pulled. There's a poll. Uh, Reuters Ipsos uh, did a poll testing Biden, Trump, and RFK Jr. And Robert F. Kennedy is at 14, percent which is not not too shabby for uh, a third party candidate. So you know that's something to watch. He's supposedly announcing an independent campaign uh, starting next week. Tom, what what, are the, what do you think the polls tell us about this? I mean, there is this poll from uh, Josh mentioned uh, Dick Kephart. That's the he runs the group Citizens to Save Our Republic. They did some polling um, about this. Kephart is uh, and and Citizens Save Our Republic is anti um, uh, no, no labels and trying to raise three million dollars, I guess, to fight them. But their poll showed. Uh, let me see, Trump getting. 40%, Biden getting 39%, no labels, 21%. And that's without a candidate uh, attached to it. I mean, pretty high number, don't you think? Well, yeah, when, you, when you're looking for a certain result and you want to scare people into giving you millions of dollars to head off a threat, having that threat uh, represented in the poll, but it did show in that poll that, you know, of those 21%, that, that 13% of that came from Biden, 8% came from Trump. So, but I, I do think it's unclear how this is going to work out, you know, RFK, for example, the sort of conventional wisdom is, well, he's going to hurt, he's going to hurt Biden. He's going to hurt Democrats. I I don't know that that's actually the case. I mean, he has uh, a lot of uh, his positions, um, anti-war, you know, the vaccine skeptical, if you want to call it that, um, are positions that Republicans hold and he could easily take a, a number of votes from Trump. And again, all of this stuff, I mean, the, the national polls are really interesting, but it's going to come down to those same eight states. And that were, you know, won by, in some cases, less than half a percentage point in a place like Georgia or Wisconsin. It's like, you know, if, if RFK takes 10,000 more votes from Donald Trump, he's going to cost him the election. So it's, you know, I'm waiting to see more data. I can't wait to, to get a better read on how this is going to potentially affect the, um, the, the election, but it's going to be, it's going to be wild and woolly. I think if we have a couple of different uh, independent candidates in there, because there is real desire to vote for someone other than Biden and Trump. And, but, and then you'll have at the end of the, so they may actually poll better pre-election. And then at the end of the day, you'll have the, you know, we see this oftentimes with libertarian candidates or whatever, they pull an eight, 10%, and then they get 2% on election day because people go in there and they don't want to waste their vote. And the the sort of partisanship takes over. And so we shall see. But it's going to be, again, I think it's going to be, all these states are going to be really, really close. And you throw a couple extra candidates in the mix. It's like Jill Stein in 2016. I mean, it's, they get five or 10,000 votes. That could be the difference. It was the difference in 2000. Ralph Nader got all those votes in New Hampshire, probably swung the state from, you know, Al Gore to George W. Bush. Uh, Andy, I want to add one thing to that. You know, our our politics, we mentioned these people like, Mark Cuban, um, you know, there's other people who, besides Manchin, who are you know moderate moderates or centrists or independents. Kirsten Cinema, um, uh, Greg Orman, who who went to school college with at Princeton with Tom was there, who ran as an independent in Kansas. You know, some of these other people, they aren't known nationally, but if they got in a, in a race, and especially if they were in a debate, I mean, our politics is very personality driven, and 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 also campaigns take on a dynamic based on those personalities. Uh, the first time I saw an independent re- campaign I covered in 1992 and Ross Perot ran, he not only got 19 point, you know, 
point and a half percent of the vote after withdrawing and then getting back in and giving some flaky explanation. He, 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 I mean, he, he was polling until June of that year, um, second, you know, ahead of Bill Clinton. But as the campaign unfolded, Perot and Clinton sort of tag team George H.W. Bush and Perot was really running against Bush and so was Clinton. That's a dynamic that's hard to measure. It's hard for uh, pollsters to pick up even while it's happening. Tom's pointing out if if uh, if you had if RFK is running against Ukraine and so is Trump and Biden supporting Ukraine, well, maybe that helps Biden. It's a combination of the personalities and issue and how the and how the three or four candidates relate to one another. So it makes it more interesting and more unpredictable. And what not to harp on this point, but the Democrats don't want unpredictable. Their view is as a party, Joe Biden beat Trump. We know he can do it because he did it before. And, and we don't want any, we don't want any variables. That's what we want. Well, Josh Carl mentioned Ross Perot and um, we'll get out on this question, but do you think um, in terms of the debate uh, that uh, a third party candidate could get on the debate stage this time around? And if so, what effect would that have? Boy, uh, Andy, I don't even know if we're going to have the regular debate. I mean, you know, <laughs> Biden. I think it's Biden doesn't want to debate because, you know, he's going to be 82 and he's not even, his disability to give a speech is, is, is not, not the most effective these days. And, uh, Trump, uh, you know, doesn't like debates in the first, I, I, I think we may not even have debates between the two major party candidates, uh, no less a third party candidate. I would be very surprised if, even if we do have debates for any, any third party or, or independent candidate to, to get on the stage. Carl, no debates and no third party or. Well, the Republicans, the RNC has said that they don't want to debates if the presidential commission on debates is involved. I don't know if they'll stick with that. They, they seem to be doing what they think Trump wants. It's hard to know what Trump wants. Donald Trump isn't debating these Republican candidates uh, yet. I don't know if he'll stay with that throughout the primary season. I, I suspect he won't, but if but he doesn't feel the need to. But if he's running neck and neck with Biden, and those are the two nominees, and you don't have, and no labels doesn't come up with a viable person, or or they do, but that person is doing well in the polls. I think I don't see why Trump wouldn't want to debate Biden for the reason that Josh thinks he he goes around saying how dumb Biden is. Well, then why would he be afraid to debate him? The two the, the story doesn't track. So I, my guess is there will be debates. Uh, I I hope it's under the auspices of the Commission on Presidential Debates. And I hope the commission lowers the threshold so that if there is a third party, that person can get on the stage. Tom, I know you're a big fan of debates. <laughs> well, Carl's right. I think there are going to be debates, but I think the moderator is going to be Sean Hannity. And uh, it's all going to happen <laughs> on Fox News, <laughs> depending on how this Gavin Newsom, you know, Ron DeSantis thing goes. But um, I don't think, I don't think the, if it happens under the debate commission, they won't lower the threshold. You won't have a third party, but I agree. I, I don't even know that they're going to have, which would be amazing for us to go into this election and actually not have a presidential debate. Um, hard to believe, but, but very possible. Yeah. I think there'll be one debate and it'll be between whoever the two candidates are, and but there'll only be one of them this time around. So with that, I got the last word this time. I want to thank Carl Cannon, Josh Kroshauer, and Tom Bevan. We're here most Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. So bookmark this podcast, come back often. And as ever, I encourage you to go to Real Clear Politics and read one article from a writer or publication with whom you disagree. Thank you for listening. And until next time, for Real Clear Politics, I'm Andrew Walworth.